What's the history of cannabinoid research? And what is the endocannabinoid system? What are its major functions? And what happens when this system goes awry? You're listening to Cannabinoidology, a podcast dedicated to unlocking the science of cannabinoids. Welcome back to another episode of Cannabinoidology. I'm your host, Alex Chisholm, and joining me on today's episode is Dr. Matt Hill. Dr. Hill is an associate professor at the Hotchkiss Brain Institute at the University of Calgary. Dr. Hill's research focuses on determining the role of the endocannabinoid system in the effects of stress on neuroendocrine function, emotional behavior, energy balance and metabolism, neuroinflammation, and neurodegeneration. Dr. Hill is an internationally renowned scientist in the cannabinoid field and is currently the executive director of the Canadian Consortium for the Investigation of Cannabinoids. So, Dr. Hill, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Glad to be here. Last episode, which was Cannabinoidology's first ever episode, I tried to lay the groundwork in terms of the history of cannabis so that I could get people thinking about how views on cannabis and how legislation on cannabis can impact research. So to start, I was hoping that you could tell our listeners a little bit about the history of the cannabinoid research field so that we can put some context to the science. Yeah, um, there are several kind of key milestones, I think, in the field that most of us would refer to that we can think of as being big things that changed the way the field worked and then it advanced from there. The first of which clearly was um, the isolation of THC as being the psychoactive constituent of cannabis, which was done by Rafi Mishulam um, over at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in 1964. And in fact, the paper, the original paper on isolating THC was actually published on April 20th, 1964, um, which there That's is a lot of debate about whether... Yeah, I had no idea. Whether that, yeah, I mean, I do find it a little hard to believe that that uh, kind of mainstream like cannabis culture would have somehow realized <laughs> that the publication date of that original paper was 420. So it might just be a happy coincidence, but it is, I think, kind of interesting nonetheless. Um, so that was kind of a very important thing that got the field moving because that was this, uh, we finally, people knew then what the molecule in cannabis that was actually driving a lot of the, the biological effects and causing the kind of intoxicating high. Um, was so then that was able to be used through a series of animal studies that were mostly done and some human studies that were done kind of in the 60s and 70s uh, ethics were a little different than I would say so they were able to do a little bit more human work where you would just kind of give people stuff and see what happens um, a lot of it wasn't really well controlled we didn't I can't say we got a basic feel for a lot of the effects of giving people cannabinoids on like body temperature or feeding and things like that but we didn't really get any mechanistic insight into the system it wasn't really actually until probably ugh, the 80s people were started trying to figure out how cannabinoid system works. So maybe late 70s, early 80s, there were a lot of theories that started getting tossed around. One of them was because the structure of THC actually looks like um, very similar to steroid hormones. One of the original thoughts was that uh, THC might actually act as a false steroid, so it might be acting on glucocorticoid or progesterone or estrogen receptors to mediate its effects. Didn't really make a lot of sense given what we knew about the effects of hormones versus cannabis. And also people can get intoxicated from cannabis within minutes of consumption, whereas hormones typically act through gene transcription. So it was a bit slower. Um, there were a few other things that got tossed around, but it really was a Lynn Howlett. Um, in 1988, she published a paper showing that cannabinoids... Um, exhibited cellular responses that were completely in line with being mediated by a receptor. So they were able to activate distinct uh, intracellular signaling cascades, 
Um, so things like looking at, she was looking at adenylate cyclase. Um, she also showed that these effects of cannabinoids were saturable, which was consistent with the receptor-mediated process, and they were temperature-sensitive. So if you raise the temperature to denature proteins, which would destroy the receptor complexes, then you lost the effect. So she kind of provided the very first evidence for the field that, yes, indeed, there was um, a cannabinoid receptor, but they didn't know what it was. And it was really this kind of, uh, at least the way the, the story goes, it was a fortuitous um, localization, let's say, of Miles Herkenham's lab and Tom Bonner's lab, which were both at NIH at the time. And Miles Herkenham was looking at kind of autoradiograms of triadated cannabinoid binding across the brain um, and seeing that it did indeed have very specific binding patterns. And so uh, it probably wasn't a non-specific effect like some people had hypothesized before. At the same time, Tom Bonner's lab nearby was doing some uh, cloning of orphan receptors. And they basically saw that the in situ uh, anatomical distribution of this orphan receptor the Bonner lab was looking at was almost identical to the autoradiograms that Miles Herkenham was looking at. And both these papers kind of came out separately in the early 90s, back to back to one another, but it really demonstrated that yes, indeed, you had a, a localization of a cannabinoid receptor binding site in the brain and then actually de-orphanized a receptor that was cloned and deemed to be the cannabinoid type one receptor. So that was both kind of very early 90s that that got discovered and that was a big advance in the field because now we actually had a cannabinoid receptor. And they did call it CB1 because at that point, uh, the assumption was there were going to be multiple receptors, as is true for most neurochemical systems. Um, interestingly, the graduate student who'd been in a Lynn Howlett's lab, Bill Devaney, who just passed away a couple of years ago, actually, um, he went and did a postdoc in Rafi Mishulam's lab after being the first author in the paper that found the cannabinoid receptor. And as a postdoc in Rafi Mishulam's lab, he discovered anandamide, which was the first um, right. endogenous cannabinoid. And basically what they were doing was they were screening um, lipids from the brain to see what bound to the cannabinoid receptor. Um, and again, through a mix of serendipity and chance, they stumbled across anandamide um, and uh, found that it actually bound to CB1. And they named it anandamide because ananda is the Sanskrit word for bliss, amide because the molecule is arachidonic acid bound to um, ethanolamine through an amide bond. So they called it anandamide, which was kind of a, a fun term for the molecule and it's yeah, picked up yeah. supposed to represent inner bliss uh, so that was obviously a very big finding in the field um, and again there's kind of a small collection of people that seem to be involved in a lot of the seminal findings uh, there was a Japanese group a few years later led by Sugiura uh, that also found the second endocannabinoid which is now 2AG Rafi Mishulam also had identified it around the same time um, there was also a second seed cannabinoid receptor called CB2, which is really found on immune cells primarily, microglia in the brain. There's a lot of controversy whether it's actually on neurons. Um, and that was kind of mid-90s by that point that they had found it. So a lot of the main discoveries of the actual endocannabinoid system really gravitated between 1990 and 1995. And that really launched the field forward. We now had receptors. We had ligands. Um, there were things that people could start exploring. So then the next question was like, how does the system work? And so um, at this time, Vincenzo de Marzo was a postdoc in the PMLE lab at that point. Um, and they were looking at cultured neurons and demonstrating that if you activated them, you could get the release of endocannabinoids. Um, they also developed one of the original protocols to actually start measuring endocannabinoids. Um, and at the same time, there was a lot of anatomy being done with antibodies that were being developed. And it was seeming like CB1 receptors were almost all found on axon terminals. And so what the, they would do in that sense is probably regulate neurotransmitter release. Uh, and then it was really kind of a collection of, of three different labs that all published papers right at the turn of the century. Although Roger Nickel tends to get the credit since his paper did come out first, which demonstrated that actually 
the way that the system behaved was as a retrograde system. And so what that meant was that when a neuron became depolarized, they would synthesize endocannabinoids and they would get released into the synapse. And they would um, act as a retrograde signal and then act on presynaptic CB1 receptors, which when they bound to those receptors, the net effect was actually a suppression of neurotransmitter release. And so this actually created a system now where people almost started looking at it. In the original, I would say, contextualization of it, it was a circuit breaker. And the idea was when a neuron became too active, it started releasing endocannabinoids, and they got released and then acted on their presynaptic uh, receptors to basically shut down ongoing neurotransmission. So it was a thermostat model, a circuit breaker model, where the system was able to calibrate itself. And to be honest, this was a massive revolutionary finding in the field. The kind of canonical view had always been that neurotransmission was integrated. It went from axon terminal to cell body. This was really one of the earlier demonstrations. There'd been some work with nitric oxide too, but really a strong demonstration that you had a, a clear retrograde signal that was um, capable of basically telling the presynapse what was going on in the postsynapse. And so I think this was a massive revolution for neuroscience at large, but it also gave the endocannabinoid system um, a function and some reality to it. And so the field started chewing on it and it really started spreading. And basically to just kind of summarize the next 20 years that took us from then till now is then people basically started cherry picking different effects that we knew were present from cannabis and trying to understand if endocannabinoids regulated them, be it feeding, be it pain, be it stress or anxiety. Um, and so this is really more where the field has gone now is trying to basically understand the exact physiological roles of the endocannabinoid system to regulate a host of physiological processes to then try and understand now, can we target that system pharmaceutically or pharmacologically at least to create, create new pharmaceuticals that would maybe do some things that are similar to some of the purported benefits that people claim from cannabis, but without some of the side effects and other issues that might arise from people chronically using cannabis. I think it's safe to say that the cannabinoid research history has been relatively interesting um, and there's been some huge steps forward in such a very short period of time. Moving on, last episode, I defined cannabinoids as chemical compounds that work within the endocannabinoid system because I wanted to keep it simple. And in part, I also did this because as I was reading through the empirical literature, the terminology started to get a little bit confusing. So can you tell us what do scientists mean when they use the terms phytocannabinoids versus endocannabinoids versus synthetic cannabinoids? And kind of what's the easiest way to think about these three different types of cannabinoids? I think basically the easiest way to describe it is that it depends on where they're made. Endocannabinoids are made in your body. Phytocannabinoids are made in the cannabis plant. Synthetic cannabinoids are made in the lab. That's the easiest way to break yeah. it all down. They generally all activate the, the same cannabinoid receptors, some variants in terms of their potency and their binding affinities. But um, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do, in terms of the physiological effects, you'll certainly see some differences. Endocannabinoids obviously um, get released in very kind of specific spatial temporal patterns. So like if you get a, a, let's say a bloom of endocannabinoid release in the brain, it doesn't seem to get you at least there's no reason to believe or no evidence to suggest that we get you high or intoxicated the way if someone consumed exogenous phytocannabinoids or took synthetic cannabinoids like K2 or Spice, yeah, yeah. for example, which seem to be kind of the popularized ones that are on the street. Um, and a lot of that is probably just due to the fact if someone consumes exogenous cannabinoids, be them phyto or synthetic, they just flood the brain, hit every cannabinoid receptor at the same time. There's no specificity. So a lot of the thought is that the intoxication that comes out of that is probably due to just messing up cortical information processing, um, changing the pathways of, of the way that the brain is, is, is 
interpreting or processing information and it produces a kind of intoxicating effect. I think in terms of the phytocannabinoids that exist in the cannabis plant, most people are probably familiar with THC being the active component of the cannabis plant that gets you high and probably CBD. But I was also wondering if you could just provide kind of a general overview of the other cannabinoids that exist within the cannabis plant and how they function, or at least what we know about how they function in the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I would say five, maybe, maybe a little more than that. Now, maybe seven years ago, you could not find one in a thousand people who knew what CBD is. Now, everyone and their dog, including the dogs, the dogs definitely all know CBD. (laughs) Um, But everyone seems to know CBD now. It's amazing. Um, So yeah, THC is, I guess the easiest way to say it is THC is the one everyone knows because it's the part of cannabis that gets people high. CBD has kind of developed this weird mythology as being the medical component of cannabis, which I fundamentally don't agree with. I mean, certainly CBD probably has some medicinal properties in some capacities. Outside of pediatric epilepsy, I would say there's not a huge amount of compelling evidence in anything else. And even that is extremely high doses um, of CBD that are required to get those effects. Um, The other ones are hard because there's not a lot of work. There's things like cannabigerol and cannabichromine, which are CBG, CBC. There's also like uh, like THCV, which is thought to be kind of an anti-THC and have food suppressant effects. And um, the reality is we don't really know a lot else about what's going on in cannabis because so much attention in the research field for so long was directed at studying THC explicitly. So for the better part of the last 40 years, I would say, in the cannabinoid field, uh, uh, 90% of the research is focused on THC. Probably 8% has focused on CBD now, and most of that has really been in the last few years. And then the other molecules have largely been ignored. There's very little we understand. I mean, we generally know that none of them really seem to strongly activate cannabinoid receptors, which is probably why THC is the one part of cannabis that reliably produces intoxication due to its ability to to bind to CB1. We're not really sure what a lot of the other ones do. There's certainly, I mean, there's these theories of what they call the entourage effect, which is that varying combinations of other cannabinoids or terpenes or other chemical components that are present in cannabis are going to influence the intoxicating effect on it. Um, To date, there hasn't been a a huge amount of actual scientific evidence to support this. Most of this is based on anecdotes about people who swear by certain strains of cannabis that, oh, this one does this every time and this one does that differently. And so it must be due to this entourage effect because this one has more CBG or something in it. Um, I would say more recently, a lot of the work has actually shifted towards terpenes. So things like limonene and pinene and beta-caryophylline because a lot of them do actually have some we have some understanding of their biological activity. Again, none of them really seem to bind to CB1 receptors. And a lot of the new work that's coming out now that's trying to study this entourage effect and look at interactions, they definitely don't seem to interact with THC's ability to bind to and activate CB1 receptors. So it's got to be some other neurochemical or biological system they're interacting with that is at a net level influencing the effects of THC on the brain in some capacity. If it's if there is indeed a genuine um, entourage effect. Uh, It's unclear if that's true, though, as of now. So I would say in five years, because of the attention, certainly in Canada, that's been put on trying to study the other components of of cannabis, that we should actually have a much greater understanding of of where this is going to be. But as of now, I think it's kind of hard to really say anything with any certainty. All right. So now that our listeners know a little bit more about the history of the cannabinoid research field, and they have a little bit better of an understanding of the different terminology that we use in the field, Let's talk a little bit more about the endocannabinoid system itself. So can you describe to our listeners, what's the easiest way to think about the endocannabinoid system? What does it do? What's its function? 
I think the easiest way to describe the endocannabinoid system is that it's essentially across a multitude of physiological processes. It is a regulator of homeostasis in the brain and body. That is ultimately, I think, the easiest way to argue what the endocannabinoid system does. Whether you're talking about feeding, pain, stress, inflammation, whatever process you're looking at, the main role the system seems to do is to try and bring things back to, um, I don't know, we'll call it the happy zone. The homeostatic range where things function the best. So if you think of it like something like feeding, as an example you could use. So normally endocannabinoids, um, like if you're full, if you're sated, you've eaten food and you're not hungry, they're not doing a lot. Um, what we have learned is that if an organism undergoes fasting, so they have food deprivation for a sustained period of time, motivation to eat goes up. Some of this seems to be driven by an increase in endocannabinoid function in some feeding circuits like the arcuate or other parts of the hypothalamus that we know are important for feeding. And what it does is it seems to enhance food-seeking behavior. It also has these effects on the reward system and the VTA and the nucleus accumbens, which seems to enhance uh, the rewarding aspects of food. So. It has this ability to influence both homeostatic and hedonic feeding, but basically what happens is in a period of fasting, the elevated endocannabinoids um, seem to uh, try to drive food-seeking behavior to enhance food consumption, to replenish the nutrients the body has depleted during this period of fasting. Um, and so again, it's a homeostatic process. You haven't had food for a while, endocannabinoids go up, they make you eat. Once you've eaten and become sated again, endocannabinoid levels go back down. And that seems to relate to this kind of um, drive to uh, acquire food. Similarly with stress, with the work that we've done, what we've been able to demonstrate and others have as well is that in response to stress, we move well out of our homeostatic zones. Uh, we move into what we probably call an allostatic range, where the body kind of goes into a fight or flight mode, it tries to deal with a threat at hand. Once an organism has removed itself from that threat, we need to get back down to our baseline because it's obviously not advantageous for any organism to stay in a state of heightened stress and anxiety. And what we have learned is that endocannabinoids are produced by, in a, in a somewhat delayed manner by stress hormones like corticosterone. Um, and what they do in the brain once they elevate a response to stress hormones is they actually quiet down a lot of these emotion circuits, particularly things like the amygdala, um, to bring them back to baseline to help promote the recovery and termination of the stress response. So again, it's a homeostatic response. So something throws the system out of whack, it moves into this range, endocannabinoids kick in, and they help bring it back down to normal. Uh, you can make the same argument with pain, you can make the same argument with inflammatory processes. So it's kind of, I would say that's the raison d'etre of the endocannabinoid system, is to keep things where they should be. And I find that it's a great analogy that even when you look at endocannabinoids at a synaptic level, that's exactly what they're doing again there. So, I mean, that's the beauty of studying endocannabinoids is the, the main goal of what they do tends to be to bring things back to the best range that it functions in, whether that be at a synaptic micro level or at a kind of a gross systems level as well. All right. So now that our listeners know a little bit more about kind of the main function of the endocannabinoid system, can you tell them a little bit more about when endogenous cannabinoids like 2-AG and anandamide are produced in our body, and then how do we get rid of them? Um, I mean, endocannabinoids, certainly at least in the brain, have a very short half-life. Uh, in the blood, we're not clear because we don't actually know where they're coming from because so many cell types have the ability to make them. So we measure endocannabinoids in the blood. Who knows when that has been made and when that has been uh, degraded. I mean, they're, they're degraded by their enzymes and anandamides degraded by an enzyme called FA. 2-AG is degraded by an enzyme called meglipase. We've now developed inhibitors of those enzymes because we can selectively elevate anandamide or 2-AG, depending on which uh, enzyme we block. And those are going into human therapeutic trials now for various things. Um, but in the brain, it seems to be pretty quick. So if we look at the electrophysiology data, 
it certainly seems like if you stimulate a neuron to a level to get it to make endocannabinoids to act on its presynaptic target to shut down neurons transmission, those effects last on the order of, of a very short duration, milliseconds to seconds. Some of this probably has to do, certainly for things like 2-AG, uh, this probably has to do with the synaptic architecture because the enzyme meglipase sits in the axon terminal right beside the CB1 receptor. So in theory, the thought is that 2-AG is released, it acts on CB1, and almost immediately it is chewed up and degraded by meglipase. Fa is in the postsynaptic side of the, of the synapse. So there's a lot of kind of questions that remain about exactly how anandamide functions, where is it made, where is it you know, we, there is certainly evidence that it acts as a retrograde signal, but there is also some emerging evidence that might get released from an axon terminal, like a kind of classic anterograde signal. And therefore, that may get degraded in the postsynaptic side. It might have some promiscuous targets. There's some evidence, certainly, that it acts on trip B1 receptors, which is like what capsaicin from chili peppers acts on. Um, and so anandamide might be a bit of a promiscuous molecule in that sense um, and have a multitude of targets. And so why it acts the way it does and how it does is still not entirely clear, I would say. All right, now my next question is relatively complex, but I have to ask. What happens when the endocannabinoid system becomes dysfunctional? Well, so, I mean, if you've chatted with Ethan, I'm sure he's talked about um, the endocannabinoid deficiency idea, which is something that Ethan had uh, proposed probably about 15, 16 years ago, which is definitely an interesting theory and something I think that relates to what you're getting at. And the idea is basically that if you don't have... Um, a properly functioning endocannabinoid system, the homeostatic processes that it may regulate might fall apart. So the easiest example of this is something like epilepsy. And so there is some evidence that Istvan Katona and others have generated demonstrating that the endocannabinoid system might not work properly um, in, in things like epilepsy. And if the system isn't buffering neural excitability the way that it normally would, that could then favor the development of feed-forward kind of hyperexcitability is what you'd see um, in, in an epileptic state. And so because the endocannabinoid system is so important for that feedback loop to turn off afferent excitatory in, uh, input um, when a cell becomes too hyperactive, if that system isn't functioning properly, you lose that buffer mechanism. So you just kind of allow that sensitization to occur. And so... There are some thoughts that the endocannabinoid system may not function properly in things like epilepsy, and that may favor states of neural hyperexcitability. A little bit of a, I would say it's still hypothetical at this point. We have made a similar theoretical argument in the context of a lot of stress-related psychiatric disorders. This is rooted a little bit more in the data that came out of the human trials for obesity. So there was a drug called Ramonabot, which was a cannabinoid yeah. receptor antagonist, so it blocked cannabinoid signaling. That is really the best evidence we have about what happens in humans if you take the endocannabinoid system offline. So not surprisingly, it did actually work quite effectively as a pretty good anti-obesity agent. The, uh, the effect sizes were quite robust in its ability to suppress food intake and promote weight loss. But one of the consequences that happened in a reasonable proportion of the people that went on the drug was they actually started to develop very notable psychiatric side effects, predominantly anxiety and depression. And given the work that we and others have done to try and look at the role of the endocannabinoid system and helping to kind of buffer against um, adverse effects of stress or kind of negative affective states, um, if that system isn't functioning properly, we would hypothesize that that may make an individual or organism more vulnerable to the effects of stress and more vulnerable to exist in a state of kind of negative affect. And again, this is hypothetical. We have found that in some populations of individuals with stress-related psychiatric disorders like major depression or PTSD, we do see some of them do indeed have lower levels of endocannabinoids. But realistically, at the end of the day, we don't have 
a good enough understanding of the range of dynamic endocannabinoid function in humans. And so, you know, I've probably measured um, in the order of 1,500 human subjects uh, endocannabinoid levels in my lab. So I've seen a huge range of, of levels. And there are some people that just seem to be incredibly high. And there are some people that seem to be incredibly low. And they're not always within a disease context. Most of these are kind of just general, the, the healthy control population. Um, and we do tend to see, you know, like in some things like PTSD or depression, maybe it's the ranges are a little bit more restricted. So they do tend to cluster in the low end. But this isn't like, um, like blood glucose levels where we have a very clear cutoff where we can say if you're below this, you're hypoglycemic. Or like even cortisol where we have clear thresholds that if you're below that level, you are hypocortisolemic. And then there's a way to deal with it. Are you Addisonian? How do we get around this? And so there are kind of a necessity to understand really, one, how stable are endocannabinoid levels in humans? Now, we've done a couple of studies with, with clinical collaborators where we've looked at serial measurements um, across an individual over several different days. We do tend to see some stability in the sense that people who tend to be on the higher end remain on the higher end and people who are on the lower end remain on the lower end. But there's also a lot of people that fluctuate. So it's unclear how stable these levels are and how representative they are. We do almost entirely blood measures because that's what's um, easily captured. We've done some saliva. The saliva stuff I wouldn't put much money on. Um, it, it's unclear what it is. It's unclear what it's representative of. It doesn't seem to correlate with blood in our hands very well. Um, and so, but even measuring blood levels, you get a lot of arguments, well, what does this mean for the brain? And we're not sure what this means for the brain, but we do know that there are some very clear, reliable correlations that we see between circulating levels of endocannabinoids and certain emotional states. Um, and there is some work from the animal stuff that has suggested that correlations do exist between central and peripheral compartments. We just don't understand it enough. So it's really kind of hard to know, but my guess is that if you look at CB1 receptor knockout mice, which are, I guess are the most artificial but realistic model of a complete lack of a functional endocannabinoid system, yeah. you see that they develop seizures quite readily. You know, they're very lean. They don't eat much food. They're very resistant to obesity. They're hyper anxious and very sensitive to stress. Um, they do tend to sensitize to pain quite quickly. They're so a lot of the things that we would assume based on our basic understanding of the physiology of the system and the processes that it regulates if it doesn't function properly, it's not, it's not lethal in the sense that other, you know, you can take some systems away and that's it. You won't have survival past uh, fetal development. You can, it seems like organisms can survive in the absence of a cannabinoid system, but there are clearly some problems that develop. Today, you've told us a lot about the history of the cannabinoid research field. You've described for us the major endocannabinoid system function. You've talked about the different endocannabinoids that exist in our body when they're produced and how they're degraded. Now I have to ask you one more question, and that is, what do you think is the main avenue for future research when it comes to the endocannabinoid system? I mean, I think it depends on which way you're looking at this. There are, I think there are multiple prongs that are running in tandem and in parallel to each other that are all new avenues that need to get figured out that are being explored. So, I mean, there are some very basic questions about the system that have not been really well fleshed out. Um, I think, there are a few advances we've had that have really helped the field move forward. Um, I personally am a very big fan of the work of um, Giovanni Marsicano and Istvan Katona and Ben Cravat in the endocannabinoid field. I would say those three researchers over the last few years have proven to be the ones that have really 
push the field forward. They've been the ones who've, Giovanni has done a lot of work to show to kind of break the mold of what cannabinoid receptors do. They're not just presynaptic, they're on mitochondria. They might regulate, you know, cellular bioenergetics and have these whole different other effects that are unrelated directly to their ability to, to modulate neurotransmission. Um, and he's really kind of posed a lot of things that have made people question what we think about the endocannabinoid system. He's also moved into the, um, the role of endocannabinoids on glial cells, especially astrocytes, which I think has actually proven to be one of the more interesting areas in the field. And it'll be very interesting to see where that goes because how cannabinoids are influencing neuron astrocyte communication, I think is going to be one of the next big things in the field. Um, ben Cravat obviously has been he was one of the people who discovered FA. He's been very seminal in kind of laying down a lot of the foundations of the system, but he did some really great work in the last few years to actually start dissecting the cellular compartments where, for example, meglipase exists and how this influences um, 2AG actions in the brain. So, you know, they created different lines where they took meglipase out of neurons or astrocytes or microglia. And again, it goes to this kind of multi-cell phenotype, like what do endocannabinoids do in neurons versus glial cells? And so... And Ben's work really showed that whether 2-AG is being metabolized by glial cells or neurons has a very big effect on things like neurotransmission, but it's also neuroinflammation. So I think that's been very informative, and I think the pathway where that goes now will be important. And lastly, Istvan Katona's work. Istvan's a beautiful neuroanatomist who's done some amazing work on kind of essentially the molecular architecture of cannabinoid receptors where using super-resolution storm microscopy, he's been able to identify like individual CB1 receptor proteins and where they sit on the axon terminals um, and how they're modulated by chronic agonist exposure. He's had some beautiful papers um, looking at this, and he's got some ongoing work now that's looking at how these uh, receptors organize themselves on axon terminals of glutamate versus GABA neurons, which I think will be massively informative for the field because there's a lot we don't understand about what happens when cannabinoids regulate excitatory transmission versus inhibitory transmission in the brain. And, and there's a lot of questions we have about how that functions. In the endocannabinoid field, though, there is one lingering question that no one has really been able to answer. And I think it's something that the field will have to tackle in the next few years, which is how does a lipid move across the synaptic cleft? This is just something that everyone in the field right. kind of Right. brushes to the side and no one discusses yeah. in any depth um, because we're like, well, you stimulate a neuron, you get a presynaptic response. So we assume it's crossing the synaptic cleft, but you know, how does that work? Are they, you have clusters of endocannabinoids forming knee cells. Are they moving along like an extracellular matrix? And in this sense, uh, Martin Kachocha, who's um, at, at Stony Brook in New York, I think it's Stony Brook. Um, he's doing some really interesting work, which I think is also very influential in the field, where they've started to look at a fatty acid binding proteins, basically have to act as chaperones in the synapse. And that they are gonna, you're gonna have a binding protein that endocannabinoids would tether to, and that's how they move back and forth. So I think those are the main basic questions, and those are kind of the main players, I would say, who are really moving the field forward and kind of answering a lot of the very critical basic questions that we really need to understand to have a firm grasp of the kind of neurobiology of how cannabinoids function. But then on the complete other end of the spectrum is the therapeutic side of this. And I think this is advancing very quickly. And um, we have had FON inhibitors in development and in human trials for over 10 years now. Um, unfortunately, the very first trial that was ever done from Pfizer was a, a subpar pain trial, let's say, that didn't work out as expected. And it actually shelved FON inhibitors uh, for quite some time, and there was a lot of reticence from any companies to get involved with them. 
thankfully that wall has gone down. Um, and last year was a big year because Cyril D'Souza at Yale uh, published a very interesting paper looking at flaw inhibitors in the context of treating cannabis withdrawal and cannabis dependence in humans and found some very promising results in the sense that uh, individuals who went on the flaw inhibitor did indeed uh, have uh, lower rates of cannabis use in the aftermath. More importantly, and more up the alley of what I'm interested in, what they also found was that it reduced levels of anxiety and sleep disturbances that were also present during cannabis withdrawal. So you have a signal now of, of bioactivity in humans. Um, working with Marcus Heilig in Sweden and, and Leah Mayo uh, in his group, um, we collaborated with them last year as well, and we had a paper that came out in biological psychiatry using the same FON inhibitor that had been developed by Pfizer um, and just doing a, a study in healthy controls where we wanted to see if it was able to influence stress um, and affective measures the same way it had in a lot of the animal work. And it was a very nice validation study in humans where we were able to demonstrate that if you inhibit fawn elevated nanomide levels in humans, that was sufficient to blunt physiological, subjective, and um, some other responses to stress. So people report self-report of stress was reduced if they had fawn inhibitor. After a stress challenge, they had lower autonomic responses. Um, they also exhibited different um, kind of unbiased facial muscle reactions to different affective stimuli that seemed to blunt the negative aspects of that. And really importantly, it also um, enhanced fear extinction. Um, and so they had better recall of their extinction memory over time of, of, um, of fear. And so our thought and where we would like to take this now is more in the context of stress-related psychiatric illnesses and look at if this is a viable treatment approach for things like PTSD. There was some mixed but sort of promising data that came out of a, a trial from uh, Janssen on social anxiety disorder with the FON inhibitor. It looks like they hadn't quite done their dosing exactly properly because not everyone was showing the elevations in anandamide, but in those that did have elevated anandamide, they did find some improvement in some uh, symptom domains. So I think that will be followed up on probably in a uh, little bit of a more rigorously controlled and probably uh, patient enriched in certain um, symptom profile domain to actually see if there is value in uh, treating anxiety disorders with bond inhibitors. Meglipase inhibitors are a little bit behind. They were not developed as early as the FON inhibitors. The enzyme was discovered later. There's been less work on it. There's been very little that's actually been done in humans outside of some initial phase one and two. However, some of the initial signals that came out of these trials suggest that they might be good for neurological disorders. So there certainly is some pursuit looking at things like ticks and Tourette's and um, possibly things like OCD would certainly be in a discussion um, because of uh, the early signals they've seen in their kind of uh, acute dosing phase two trials with these drugs. So, so that's kind of my, my guess is from a therapeutic sense that we're going to see FOD inhibitors moving into the domain of things like anxiety and sleep predominantly, and maybe it will be valuable for things like cannabis dependence. Um, and I think the meglipase inhibitors are probably going to move more into the realm of neurological disease and neuroinflammation is my guess. Dr. Hill, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today, so thank you so much for taking the time to come on today's episode. I really appreciate it. You've provided so much critical insight into what is a very complex system, so thank you. Yeah, thanks for chatting. It was fun. Now, before I end today's episode, I just want to highlight where else you might be able to find information on cannabinoids. The Canadian Consortium for the Investigation of Cannabinoids, short form CCIC, provides evidence-based educational information on cannabinoids, and you can actually go to www.ccieducation.com, and here you'll find a variety of different presentations by renowned researchers in the cannabinoid field, and all these presentations are open access. You can also follow the CCIC on Twitter.
Well, that's it for today's episode, and I hope you learned a little bit more about the endocannabinoid system. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and to tell at least one friend about us, and I hope you'll join me on my next episode, where I'll be talking about the difference between THC and CBD. You can follow me on Twitter at IamAlexChisholm or at CannabinoidPod for updates. Again, if you have any questions, comments, or you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, please feel free to send me a message. Thanks for tuning in.